This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to another episode of Worth Recovery. I'm Amy. I'm your host here. I'm a sex addict, and our podcast here at Worth Recovery focuses on women and sex addiction. I'm excited to bring you part two of Natalie's story. So I'm not going to really give you much of an introduction here, except uh, we had just kind of finished up one phase of her experiences in the Army, and she was moving to um, another location. Um, so we're going to just going to kind of jump right in here. If you missed the first half of this story, you're going to definitely want to go back to our previous episode and listen to Natalie part one and make sure that you kind of know what's going on with her story. Or you can just jump right in here with us um, on part two. So just a reminder, she had just kind of finished up in one area of the army and she's moving on to a second area. So here we go back to Natalie. And then I left there. In the hope again, I'm going to move, everything's going to be okay. And I went to Germany and I was the only girl in the band. And I decided, because I thought, you know, I'm going to have a bit of a reputation. I didn't want to have that reputation. I'm going to stay, like, not dating. And I did that for a while. I didn't date. And then um, this guy on the camp started stalking me. Um, He would creep into my room and take the window out of my room and get into my bed and all kinds of stuff. And then when he would be sober the next day, he'd come and apologise. And by this point, I was 17, coming up for 18, I think, about that age. And then one night, he'd come up to the the bar where we were at, and one of the guys checked, because I left, and he checked to walk home. He came into my room, and he raped me. Um, And then I dated him for three years. Because, again, I thought he, because he had sex with me, he was going to be my boyfriend, and this one stuck around, so... That was it. He was 11 years older than me. He was my sergeant, so he was in that position of power. And yeah, we dated for for three years. And some of that relationship was good, and some of it was really bad. It caused a lot of problems for me in work, um, because the other people didn't like it, that I was going away and they were leaving their wives. They were very frustrated with him because he got away with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So the other guys in, in that band reflected it back on me. They bullied me and picked on me, gaslit me, stole my stuff, and I became the the scapegoat. Um, And then there was a a guy who was a staff sergeant at the time, and I was being bullied by the sergeant major, just being put into jail for all kinds of weird stuff, like not wearing the right kind of blouse or not being stood where I needed to be. It was just, like, relentless. And this other sergeant was like, don't worry about it, little gnats when I'm in that position, I'll look after you. And it was like, he was like a big brother to me and it was it was quite nice, you know? And I was like, oh, I got my boyfriend looking out for me, got this, didn't see it at all at the time that actually this is not a good situation and they're not right. looking out for me because right. that's not how I would show up to look out for somebody. And um, when he did become in that position, he became a little bit obsessed with me. And it was always like, is that okay with you little Nats? Is that okay for you? And then as I started developing into a woman, because by this point, I was still flat-chested, 
I didn't really have any pubic hair, hadn't started my periods. I started developing really late, about 18 to 19, probably about 19, that my body started developing. He started noticing me, saying, wow, what big tits you've got, um, and just started becoming a bit more aware. And then we came back to the UK, and it carried on and carried on, and I felt really uncomfortable, and I didn't know what to do, and everybody else was sort of... Everybody saw it, but nobody stopped it. And then it got to the point where it was every day, and it was horrific. Um, and he was saying more sexually graphic stuff to me, and I didn't know what to do. And then we went away on a job, and I spoke to this guy, and I said oh, what had happened. I said, I think I think I've been sexually harassed. And I told him, and he said, yeah. And he took action. He wasn't in my band. He'd a guy, he was a guy that I knew from the School of Music who was a really decent guy. And he took some action. And then a new guy was posted into our band and he took some action on my behalf. And it all came out, like, right out there. Um, and it got really awkward. And so I decided to leave. So I, I, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Right, cut and run cut again. And run. So I decided I need to leave and I applied for a new job in a different part of the army. I was told by the director of music, our big boss, to come in, like, are you really, do you really want to be this woman who does a guy for sexual harassment? Like, think about his wife and kids. I mean, think how that's going to be when you go on. Everyone's always going to know it's going to be you. Do you want to be that woman? Um, oh, my, that makes my stomach turn. I know. Yeah. Trying to hold it together here. And so, yeah, I was, by this point, I was 21. And I was just like, sitting there feeling sorry like not sorry sorry for my existence in this chair like I must be this horrible person this poor guy I'm wrecking his life um you know maybe just my existence is is doing this um and then my boyfriend and I split up uh he supported this guy so the relationship had to end nobody stood up for me like in that group and then my mental health really started started to take the hit. I'd up the exercise, I'm single, I'm up in the exercise trying to run, um, restricting my diet, um, anorexia hitting really, really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got really thin, I got turned to like six stone, I was tiny. And like I said, this other guy had come to the band, yeah, he'd come to the band and he outed it and him and his wife were really supportive to me. And, um, he helped me get out of there, and I did. Oh, no, there was a bit before it, which I didn't find out till just recently. I'd had this mental breakdown. I'd forgotten how to play the clarinet. I'd, uh, I was in the music store room and I saw this guy come in, and that's all I knew. All I remembered is him coming in and then me looking at the wall and just having total breakdown. My ex-boyfriend coming in and taking me to the doctors. They gave me some Prozac sent me on my way and mm-hmm. give me a session of therapy and that was me done. Um, of which I thought I was I thought I was fixed. So for five years, I mean sixteen to twenty one, mm-hmm. you were the plaything. Yeah. Right? Of all of these men of power within your troop and within the clarinet, within the army. Yeah. I mean not the clarinet but the band. Mm-hmm. Really kind of within the army. Yeah, and it was always seen like because I was a woman I was never good enough. Mm-hmm. Just my sheer sexuality, my, my femininity meant that I was the lowest of the low. I was never going to achieve what what was I doing. And right. I was always trying to have to work harder and harder and harder and harder to be fitting, but of course nobody ever wanted 
Right. That was never the agenda. Right. There was never any way that you could fit in. Never. It was right. never going to happen. I was on the back foot. You know, I was set up to fail. Yeah. Yeah. So how did how did you get out of that situation? Well, I left. I got a new job. Okay. I transferred to a different part of the army, the Royal Engineers. And I um, just threw myself into the job. Yeah. And it was it was enjoyable. And and I'm going to say this with a caveat. Okay. Those men treated me better than I got treated in the other place. Now, I haven't looked at any of that yet. Um, the sexual harassment and stuff like that. I haven't even opened that door, so that might change. But I didn't get raped. Um, and if anything, I went a bit more feisty. And I was the only woman on the camp, girl, I was a girl, on the camp, like a thousand men and me. And I would be wolf whistled wherever I would go. But I found my voice a little bit. It was well, a much more robust I was gonna environment. Say, yeah, I mean, after five years of that. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, it's either die or... Come out fighting. Or come out fighting. I'd say my whole personality switched. Then I became feisty. Um, my trooper boys, the guys that I was with, um, this guy had come. They'd beasted us, as they do every week. You know, we'd been out and had a good running. And he said, does anybody else want to say anything to the troop? And I was like, yeah, I want to speak to the troop. And he went, and I said to the guys, I'm being hit on everywhere I go. Like, that's not why I'm here. If I wanted to have a job like that, I'd be standing, I'd be standing on the street. I'm here to do a job like you. If you hear anybody else do it, please ask them to stop. And they mostly, all that one, respected that. One guy did offer me sex and wouldn't tell anybody as a favour for me. Oh, so kind of him. I know, it's so kind of him. But there asshole. is a funny story. Asshole. <laughs> yeah. No. That I asshole. accidentally threw, and it was an accident, I accidentally threw a thunder flash which he accidentally ended up sitting on and it actually blew up his asshole. That's... <laughs> so, Are you serious? I am serious. And it's on video. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I didn't do it on purpose, but okay. the asshole it and under was good. Um, but yeah, and moving on, like just go for jump forward. That guy who he stood around the corner and listened to me. He came up and said, "You know, I didn't want women in the in the regiment, but I take my hat off to what you said. I really respect you for that." And he was a corporal on the camp and was always nice to me. Um, he's now my son's godfather. Mm. Um, years later, it just so happened that things came back around again. That he mm -hmm. and his wife came into my life, and he was a respectful guy. And so that was nice to have that experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I left that camp. I went to a different camp. Um, I'd met a guy and started dating at that point, um, who later on went to be my husband and the, the father of my son. Um, and that's how I ended up getting out of the army when I had a baby. Okay. That, yeah, so that was that. Yeah. Whew, heavy yeah. stuff. Really heavy stuff, right? Yeah, it's hot. And so, like, you know, when you when you started sex addiction recovery, yeah, right? Like, it didn't even occur to you that no, I those things, all. like, weren't your fault or no. that, you, that they set you up for some of your behaviors? No, it's only, like, I had a different sponsor. I wrote my step one. I took all of that myself. I wrote every bit of that single infantry, including the other sexual harassment bits, that it was my fault and that I'd encouraged it because I was a sex addict. Um, and I wore that. I wore that jumper of shame and I walked around with it, this fear that I was like this disgusting, horrible mm -hmm. sex addict, which I do think um, a lot of sex addicts do. 
a lot of people, especially the men, they wear it and as if I've got to keep coming to recovery so that I don't take myself and perpetrate the rest of the world. The poor world having to put up with me. And I wore that jumper. And it wasn't until we started working together that you had me go back and start looking at some stuff um, that I started to see. And I think in some ways that was harder to sit with. It changed my whole reality. Um, by that, it's it can be easier to just make it my fault, right? Yeah, because I had control. Right, right. Because then when it's my fault, I had control, and so then what that mm. means is that it's easier to change. Because if I yeah. had control over it, then all I have to do is change myself. All I have to and do then, is shut down my sexuality. Right, and then the world will be awesome. Yeah, right. The world will be awesome. Yeah, but in reality, no, it didn't work. Like it wasn't. That. It wasn't working for you. No, right? it wasn't. Um, I mean, you were getting more and more angry and more and more yeah. upset. And I didn't have, I couldn't run because in this time I'm, I then fessed up that I'd had a back injury, gone to the doctors and it turns out that I needed a spinal fusion. It wasn't like a minor injury and I was on the waiting list. So exercise was out the, out the window. Um, workaholism wasn't paying off. I didn't have the energy. Sex addiction wasn't working because I definitely wasn't going to be hooking up with people. That's not, you know, it terrified me. Um, the thought of being unsafe, that wasn't going to work. The pornography definitely didn't work. It wasn't my thing. I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, my therapist in that time, it just seemed to go from bad to worse. My therapist in that time, she ended up actually moving to the States. She was British, she moved to the States. And that was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I got a new therapist, a guy called Nick. And he was amazing. He really did. He tried to, like, when I saw signs of vulnerability coming at me with the fact that I was perpetrated on and sexually abused, um, but I still wasn't willing to own it. It was, no, no, willing it was to me. See it. wasn't to see it. It was me. Right. I was the problem. Um, and then one day when I went in, we were working together. We'd spoken about a few things. I was vulnerably ripped open and he just ripped into it and said, I am so angry at those men for using you as a sexual plaything in a sexual playground it was just wrong and it makes me really angry and that was it like there was no going back from that truth and um it was just after I'd had the operation so I was it was a whole life change in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and it was super hard mm-hmm. and I'd been working with that therapist probably for about a year and then um something happened which changed the dynamic of our relationship I'm not really sure what happened um, and then he'd an, another client that had been come in was in recovery. He'd facilitated a disclosure of that client to me of something that was pretty secret, not secret, but more personal to him. Mm-hmm. And it's something I didn't want to hear, didn't want to hold, and I couldn't hear and hold it. Um, and it was super difficult. And we were talking at the time, um, thankfully, and I was getting angrier and angrier, and anger was coming out all over the place. And the therapist and I had worked together and I really respected him and loved working with him. And I was kind of excited and like, yes, I've got that final path where I can go back to the therapist and say, when you did this, I felt like this and we're going to work through it. And that's not what happened. Um, I went back in and said, when you did this and this is what it's bringing up for me, you couldn't hold that. And it took me down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd lost my physical strength, which really knocked the vulnerability down. Like I... I knew I couldn't run, Mm -hmm. I couldn't get away, I couldn't be physically strong and protect myself. I was physically weak at this point. You know, if somebody came up and pushed me, I would have fallen over. 
Um, and we spoke at length about that. Um, I went back in and circled back with him and tried to have that conversation again. And he still wasn't able to hold it. In the meantime, I'm going to the groups. Anger's coming out. I can't say why I'm angry. I can't talk to the other people why I'm angry because it's not my place to disclose this guy's stuff. And it felt like my dysfunctional family again, that I'm holding family secrets that I don't mm-hmm. want to do. And my therapist couldn't get why that wasn't happening. And everything fell apart and it was a really, really hard time. Um, yeah, I was a wreck. And that was a couple of years back now. Yeah, yeah it's been a couple of years, couple I of years. And... I'd say that was another rock bottom. That was a recovery rock bottom where everything had to change. Yeah. Um, we kind of jumped in your story there from like, yeah. you know, when you came back from the army, mm-hmm. right? And then kind of jumped forward and talked a little bit about your therapist. Yeah. I, I think that um, one of the, one of the awesome, like, resilient pieces of your recovery, right? Resilient. Is how many therapists have you gone through, right? A I mean, lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot of therapists. Some in the beginning, the therapists I went through because I'm like I couldn't handle it. Uh-huh. As the time went on, it's because they can't handle it, and I felt that they're not up to the job of holding my space. Right. Um, I got better at shopping for therapists. Right. And like, and that's that's a reality of therapy that yeah we don't talk about enough or a lot, right? Like, I mean, my personal the way that I describe it is like, counsel counselors or therapists can only counsel you to the same level of mental health that they have. Yeah. Right? Like, we can't, because I'm a teacher, so, like, I can't teach a level of math that I don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. And I definitely can't teach, like, biology because I'm not made, I don't have a degree, <laughs> right? But, like, therapists are the same way. Like, they, yeah. if they haven't done their own work or if they struggle with something, right, mm-hmm. then if, if you struggle with that same thing, there might be some problems there, right? Yeah. And so, like, therapists can't, counsel you or, th- or give you therapy to a level of mental health that they don't have yeah right and so sometimes it means we outgrow a therapist and that was hard like with Nick I wasn't prepared for that it was a shock because I thought I'd be with him forever mm-hmm. this is working I was getting so many light bulb moments and so much traction I thought this was gonna this is gonna be a fit forever it, it really crashed quite hard yeah it did um, I remember yeah I remember it well and then my experience of finding another therapist was super hard. Oh, that was hard. And I literally was hanging on to my sanity with a, by a kite string. That's the only way I could put it. And what was getting me through day by day was listening to your podcasts, listening to the Thanks for Sharing podcast, listening to the Sex Addiction 101 podcast, anything that I could listen to just to give me hope keep going right keep going, keep I remember going. that period of time because you would also send me like YouTube videos like do you know this person have you watched this and I'm like there are not a lot of people that I would consider like as well read or <laughs> better read or more no, more knowledge of the resources yeah. like that are out there you know but you I mean I went for it you went for it right like yeah because I wasn't going back you weren't going back but things went I I was in a lot of pain I think I was in the most the hardest emotional pain I was having to sit with. I was having to sit with the reality that was coming up, that I'd been raped a lot, sexual abuse, sexual harassment. Anger was coming out all over the place. I didn't even know it was anger. Right. I, my support network had gone. I had nothing. Um, my friends couldn't understand me because I was just raged all the time. They couldn't hold that space for me, and the dynamic was no longer fitting with a lot of them. Right. 
and I was still trying to be a parent and I was still trying to life and be an adult it, right well it and something hard. you said earlier kind of triggered something for me too a thought just like your whole life you have been able to rely on your physical strength right yeah. like your whole life you've been able to rely on I I can control my weight I can run the fastest I can mm-hmm. you know I'm the strongest I you know I can do this I, I can outrun I men can, right I'm stronger than they were right even though I'm small right I can teach 20 fitness classes in a week like I can do all these things but when you came into recovery for sex addiction like you I mean the level of vulnerability you had was like triple because mm-hmm. that was taken away from you yeah. because you couldn't do those things mm-hmm. you couldn't do any of that you couldn't run you couldn't move you couldn't mm-hmm. you know pack up your family and leave oh, I, I, you didn't and not have just the couldn't physical, do strength. physical strength I didn't have the mental strength at this well, point I didn't have I didn't have another start in me I didn't that have makes another that you more vulnerable yeah. mentally because this was it the physical piece was gone mm-hmm. it, wow I was at that point where nothing else was I was completely broken down mm-hmm. and it was kind of that point of no return. Like, I was in so much physical, in mental pain and emotional, mm-hmm. physical pain in my body. That, how am I going to do this? Yeah. How am I? How am I getting out of this? I haven't got friends. I haven't got this. And at the time, the SA group that I'd been going to for a couple of years, that was full of men, because all of my trauma about the patriarchal environment of men, that was coming out, and it was coming out on these guys. And I was starting to become really resentful at being there. Um, and I was listening to your podcast today when it was like, things aren't working. And like so one day you just wake up and that's how it seemed to happen. Uh-huh. But realistically, it happened over time. I was just unwilling at that point to look and start moving. And it just seemed that everything crashed again in that one moment. Um, and I didn't see... Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see a way out. I genuinely didn't know. And I was hanging on like your every word and Jackie's every word, just the sheer hope. And John off the podcast like... Please let them, let this be the truth. Mm-hmm. Let this be the truth. It was when, a hard summer. Yeah. When, when we have lived in such like a toxic environment for so yeah. long, right? We don't, we don't have that hope that like, you know, this, like something can be different, you know? Yeah, I just couldn't see it. I mean, from you, like your, your parents, your family situation, and then school, and then the army, and then the band, and, and then, then different jobs, the engineers, well. and then different jobs. Like everything had reinforced your idea that like this, this is this is my problem. This is my fault. Yeah. Like I'm the scum of the earth. And, and if like, I move, if I do anything about it, it's going to happen again anyway. Right. Because everything can kind of reinforce that, right? Yeah. Even talking about it now feels tired and painful. Mm-hmm. Just to even say like. How? Because it's not that long ago. How did I get out of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump back though, because there's a couple other things I want to mm-hmm. talk about. If you're open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got out of the army mm-hmm. because you got pregnant. So you yeah. got married. Got married. And how was that relationship? Not good. In, I was not a healthy ways? person. Okay. Um, he was one of the corporals that I'd met through training, so he already came into that power dynamic. Um. I was obviously... And he was older than you? Yeah, he was older than me. A sweet guy at the time. Um, He had a lot of issues that he needed to work through. I brought a lot of issues that I needed to work through. We just couldn't make it work at all. We were very angry with each other. We rowed like brother and sister all the time. Um, It was just awful. And I dealt with it. One of the reasons why I got into therapy, why I came into SA, I dealt with it by having an affair. Um, It was an emotional affair for a long time. 
I didn't know how to connect with my husband. Anytime I tried to show up vulnerable, it made him angry. Um, there was a lot of sexual abuse in our relationship. He was really annoyed with me. And how the car accident happened was... Um, did I mention the car Did I mention I had a car accident? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How that happened was I did a moonlight flit leaving him because we were living in a Middle East country. I just left in the middle of the night. It was before I was having what would be classed as a physical affair. I was still just texting and having an emotional affair. Um, and the next day, we were involved in a huge car accident. Um, which fractured my spine in three places, broke my clavicle and tore tendons in my hand. So I was in a sling and a cast for like eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And you already had your son by then? Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was a toddler by okay. then. And then, so having had that near-death experience of like, it, I could have been dead, I thought I'd go back and give the marriage another go. Um, now, with the information I know, going back and trying to pick up where it left without talking about anything that had happened <laughs> really wasn't going to work. Um, but naivety and hope of that young girl in me. Mm-hmm. We went on, it was a horrific year. We really, it was bad for both of us. Yeah. And so a year later, I left. And that's when I moved back to the UK. Yeah, you had the, the affair, the physical part of the yeah, affair. Yeah, lasted two weeks, the physical side of the affair, um, the guilt yeah. riddled me. And the fact I was in a Muslim country, like, it's against the law. Mm-hmm. I would have been in prison, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm out. Yeah. And that's what I did, and just, again, did another flit. Yeah. So you came, you left the army mm-hmm. and came back to the UK and brought your son. No, I wasn't in the army then. You weren't in the army then. I was out. I was teaching fitness classes then. That's right, that's right. Which was going well at that point. In? <laughs> in my head. No, it was going well, I'm sure it was. It was going well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I came back to the UK, um, and that's when I found out my mum was an alcoholic. Okay. Like, if you look at the trauma, just the trauma of what she experienced, her son, daughter, granddaughter, a grandchild, all in this huge accident. My dad was really ill, and I was getting divorced. It was just so much for her to handle. And working full-time, and helping other people in the family, because she's, she's, she's a giver. She's a rescuer. She's a rescuer. She was burning out yeah. um, at both ends, like I was. Right. And it's taken a long time for me to see her in me, and me in her, and the similarities. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually quite nice to sit here today and own that. And have some compassion for her. Yeah. But. I think that's one of the gifts that I have found in recovery. Yeah. And it, I feel like if you. The people that I know that stick in recovery. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's. I mean it's hard. It's, yeah. it's not easy to develop that level of compassion. Right. It's painful. It's painful. It, it brings a level of grief with it. That is really it's really hard to process and it's hard to find the right people to help you process that right That's I mean we've just part. been talking about that earlier today yeah. and yesterday right like that grief that comes up around parents and and family and what you wanted it to be that it wasn't and mm-hmm. all of those things but and how I, we don't get a do-over right we, we don't get to go back this right. is it but I it's one of those gifts in recovery that has meant so much to me mm-hmm. because um, I it's either hate my family, right, and like ostracize myself and like live a whole different life, yeah. or it's learn to develop some compassion and see and yeah. understand. And I think the compassion is the the hard route, right? Yeah, it's because it makes me vulnerable too. Yeah, I'm I trying to find new ways, see, right? Because I start to see compassion for everybody, right? Yeah, like, and that's hard. That's so hard. It feels like there's a layer of skin that's gone. 
mm-hmm. and I have to work super hard with boundaries and they're not always easy mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah it's it's totally hard to because when that that layer came down you see the whole world like that it's not just your parents and it's so it's, true it's the grief of the painful world in which we live in and how people are not equipped mm-hmm. to deal with that pain and watching the damage that other people do that's that's a level of my skin that I don't have yet and right. it's, it can some days feel like my, and literally my skin's been ripped off yeah it's painful the, and and it's hard mm-hmm. it's so hard to live in that reality I, I feel like I've really struggled with that the last I don't know year and a half maybe yeah. of my life like it's just too painful to sit mm-hmm. or watch or see or things like that but I have found the last like few months the upside of that mm-hmm. is that you also get to see people being kind. Yeah, that's true, actually. Right? Like, it, it's really difficult. Like, if I if I numb everything out, you know, yeah. it's really difficult. But if, and then I take the wall down and, like, I start seeing compassion and understand why people do things. And then at the same time, I, like, I find myself crying for, like, mm-hmm. you know, I watched, this happened the other day. <laughs> so sad, but, like, I mean, it's not sad, but, like, this kid, you know, I was at an intersection. This kid was trying to cross the street, mm-hmm. and like nobody was stopping. But I wasn't in a position to like move my car to like make it work because I was going the other way and blah blah blah, right? And finally, this car like kind of positions himself and stops so that yeah. everybody else has oh, to stop wow. so this kid can cross the street, right? And I'm like bawling my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, you're so nice. Like, why? You know, thank you for noticing that. Like, I was trying, and, and I'm just like. Okay, Amy, like suck it up. You know, like there are, like, I feel like that compassion yeah. allows me to see those things too. Yeah, I had a similar thing. I was driving up the highway in the UK uh-huh. and an ambulance came up. And I don't know how it is over here, but in the UK, the traffic's quite heavy. And then they were all moving out the way for this ambulance to go through. And I just burst into tears, like, that's so kind. Look at everybody. Just, why am I doing this? Right. But it's like tears of joy that the gift of being alive like right. when are we ever going to experience this like i don't know what's going to happen after right so right i get to, i get to watch that people come in together just to move out of the way mm-hmm. and that's a miracle right which i've, I've never even noticed before i just yeah. moved out of the way right mm-hmm. but i so i think there are there's an upside yeah it, it's hard but yes. and i feel you know like like you're saying putting those boundaries in place and learning you know yeah. how that is like I feel like the more boundaried I am the more mm-hmm. compassionate I can be yeah and and that's been helpful too mm-hmm. yeah yeah so seeing yourself in your mom mm-hmm. right and then you in her and she in you and the compassion that you you know have learned mm-hmm. right in recovery um that's that's an amazing gift that we get as yeah. part of the recovery process. It is. Um, some of the struggles with that have been um, my anger over the years and the resentment towards them has damaged the relationship. Um, and especially when I first came to recovery, like when I first started finding my voice, everybody found out. Boundaries were going up everywhere, firm and hard. <laughs> and I've damaged some people, and especially my parents in that. And we're just starting to find now a new relationship I'm not sure how that's going to look I definitely want them in their life mm-hmm. I know that they want me in their life it's not going to be what I ever want them to be and I'm not going to be what they want them to what they want of me but it's trying to find now new ways with the new me how we can relate and that's yeah. we're, we're at the very embryotic stage of that really mm-hmm. at the moment yeah so there's a couple things like mm-hmm. 
through your recovery process that I want to hear you talk about. <laughs> um, so one is through this process of, you know, really identifying your trauma yeah. and the things that you've experienced and the rape and the sexual harassment and things like that. I have been blown away by the resources available for women in the UK. Yeah, me you, too. That you've been able to access. For free. For Well, for free, but just that, just that they exist, right? Yeah. Like, I've been blown away. So will you tell us a little bit about some of those resources? Yeah. So if we go back to, like, that summer, mm-hmm. the black summer, when it was, like, <laughs> everything was bleak and you were like, it's fine, just keep going. Um, I I'm went... Like, you'll get through. You'll get through. Just keep, keep going. going. Keep going. You'll be okay. <laughs> and it is. It is. I believe you. <laughs> and... My uh, my trauma was coming out all over the place, mm-hmm. and I was just angry like I never felt before. It was just in, in my whole body. And somebody suggested to me that I try a service called SARC, the Sexual Assault and Referral Centre. Um, I was still shopping for another therapist as well, and I went along to this SARC, and I was obviously angry. It, it was evident that I was angry, apparently. And I told her some of my story, and I went back and I made anonymous complaints about two, so about the guy, the, the officer in the basic training and the guy in the army that sexually mm-hmm. harassed me. I made two anonymous complaints to the police about that. So that was around about September, I think. Um, in the meantime, of getting some other therapists as well. And so I was sent to them. From the back of that, they put me on a, um, it's called the Recovery Toolkit. And it was a a 12-week course on how to recover from sexual assault. And that was all free. And the first day we went in, and I was, especially by then, I'd say quite closed off emotionally. Like, I was just angry all the time. And tears had not hit at all. And the woman just walked into the room, and she owned that room. And she put her hands on the table, and she's like, just one thing I want to get straight. It is not your fault. You didn't ask for it. And she looked at every one of us in the eyes, and that was it. Unzipped. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. We went through tissues in that in that room every week, and it was an amazing course for twelve weeks. Um, on the last week, they had us write a letter to somebody, um, and it could be anybody. And the week, then we got to rip it up and burn it with her, and it broke me. That was when the reality of the trauma that I was carrying hit me mm-hmm. um, really hard. And there wasn't any going back. And she was amazing. I was such an empowered woman to, to have a woman hold me when I was crying. And then she she let me sob. And then she just took me away and said, you're never going back. This is it. It's not happening anymore. You're a strong woman. You, you know, you found in your voice. This is it. And that was it. it, it that's when things slowly... My self-esteem started getting a bit better. And I started going out and about trying to do other things. Um, so that was free, which was amazing. I also went to Women's Aid um, to deal with some of the um, domestic abuse which was happening mm-hmm. within my family and with my husband. That was a free course, another recovery toolkit. And then I went on to the Survivors Programme, which was amazing, which is again another free course. Through that, I've chosen not to have therapy through them because I'm having enough mm-hmm. <laughs> therapy. I don't want to be over-therapized. But they had free therapy to offer for women. and. My son and I have family therapy. He also went on a uh, recovery toolkit 12-week course, similar for children, and he had one-to-one therapy. And we have family mediation now, which is all free, and it's it's really changing 
my life, his life, because he does carry the weight of my traumas. Mm. Like I carry inside of me a hatred for men, and I'm raising a boy. I can't hide that from him. I try to hide it from myself, but he will pick it up. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's gonna have picked up some of my anxieties and stuff. So it's so good that there's help out there for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now become a an advocate for women as well. Um, so other women, uh, it's called an Ask Me Ambassador. So people get to come and speak to me, tell me their stories, and I can signpost them onto some of these free. Mm-hmm things um and you've had an opportunity to share your story with people through yeah. that program as well yeah helping helping other women and which helps me like yeah. every time I share my stories like you say you heal a little bit more I tell a little bit more and um, I own a little bit more I tell myself the truth a little bit more mm-hmm. which gives me the platform to heal yeah yeah and it's surprising how many women connect um there's still a lot of anger to process through um right it's a process yeah, it's a process right yeah and then in January, I went with the, with the aid of SAR, because I have a support worker who checks in to check that I'm all right. Even coming here, she was like, have a great holiday, happy birthday. You know, they're just so amazing. I can mm-hmm. drop in for a cup of tea anytime I want. And they're throughout the whole of the UK. It's not just where we are. It's, and I didn't even know they existed. Um, with her, the support of her, I made official police statements about these two men. And I went in and made the nine anonymous state, uh, statements about the other guys as well. Um, and that was super scary. I um, remember. Yeah, and it was great to have your support through <laughs> it. Like, oh no! <laughs> um, it's the best thing I've done. The support system in the UK for making those complaints. I, I didn't have the result I wanted. I've had a pretty good result from one of them that I'm super pleased about. Mm-hmm. It's not what I thought I wanted, and that process was hard. However, it's restored my faith a little bit in there's good people out there that will help me okay, there was nobody for me to go to then, but there is now. Mm-hmm. And keep getting back up, and if they can't help you, go somewhere else. Somebody will hear it and help mm-hmm. you. And that's what my experience has been. And I've been surprised when I went in and made those statements. She was the first woman outside of our mm-hmm. recovery relationship that I went to tell and her say, wow, you carried a lot. And I was like, are you sure it's not me? And she was like, no. And then, so when I went into the other one, I must take this, I just blurted it all out. And another one. There's another one to make. There's another one to make. And then she was the one who was like, how are you still living? I don't know. Like, how are you still surviving? Um, yeah, so, but the support is out there and there's a lot of it. And I'm on a waiting list now for a specific trauma therapy for rapes and mm-hmm. sexual abuse, which is all free. And it's, limitless it's not like I'm gonna have a six-week program and off I go it's however long I need it Mm -hmm. which is amazing yeah so we're gonna include websites and phone numbers in all the show notes Mm -hmm. for the for the um for the podcast episode because if you're in we have largely probably because of Natalie we have we do have a large following of worth recovery in the UK yeah and there are a lot of women there who have experienced similar things to you yeah and there are a lot of resources for them definitely and I would honestly say every woman should go on the women's aid recovery toolkit Mm -hmm. every single one should go on that because things that open my eyes on that that I didn't even see as being sexism gender sexism oppression of women I didn't even see and I went on that and it really empowered me and Mm -hmm. I went back I was on a course in college I went back to all the girls let's go on this course 
I think every woman would benefit from mm-hmm. from that. And the, the it's through Women's Aid in the UK, and they will come into your workplace and do it and talk to the guys. Oh wow! And it's all for free. That's fantastic. It's phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Okay, so another thing that's yeah. exciting about your life, right? <laughs> okay. Um, is that you're currently dating someone. I am. I am. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, tell me how that's working out for you. Hard. Mm-hmm. A scary. Um, I avoided it for a long time, as you know. I think it was for two years you were telling me, like, it's okay to get back out there dating. But it, for me, it was easier to stay shut down emotionally and sexually to a relationship I was safe mm. of. Um, in the beginning of recovery, I wasn't going out there and perpetrating on people as I thought. Later in recovery, I wasn't going to get perpetrated on. And there's a part of me that resided myself to being alone for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was a safer option. And then I started getting these little flickers of, I might want a relationship. And it was super hard to hold that because it's, am I being codependent? Right. Am I being needy? Am I back in my addiction? Um, so I would just push it away. And I think I kind of touched on it with you, but never really went there. Um, I shut it down a lot. And then, it's really bizarre. I started watching Queer Eye. Have you seen the program? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And I started looking at the guys on there, and Tam France, who's British, and I was like, he's a really nice guy. That Maybe that's the kind of guy I should date. Somebody a little bit more, you know, in touch with their feminine side as well. And then, um, there was a guy in a in a group I went to and somebody told me he was gay and then I found out he wasn't gay and as soon as it found out it was like oh my gosh it changed my whole perspective Mm -hmm. and I was really attracted to him and it was almost like um, the force had moved before I'd even known it moved and yeah that was it and it was scary I didn't know how to handle these feelings at all it was super super scary Um, I felt like a teenage girl again yeah like do I hold his hand? Do I kiss him? Do I not kiss him before marriage? Um, I was still an SA. The sobriety definition was no sex before marriage. Um, and it was really hard. How do I navigate this? And this is not what I planned, because I like a plan. I like a list, I like a plan. <laughs> um, and it was hard. And it is still hard. Um, and, and the whole time you're telling me it's hard, you have this huge grin on your I face. I do, because he's amazing. And so, I'm happy. Right. Yeah. Um, it's... It was the impetus I needed to push me out my comfort zone and start to live mm-hmm. the life that I'd worked hard for and start to experience the joys that come with a relationship mm-hmm. and start to put into practice a lot of the things I'd learned into recovery and realise actually I'm not that good at it but I might need to look at it again or some things I'd learned and it, it is going well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... So... <laughs> It's going well, like, yeah. right. Right. So, so, have you disclosed to him? I have. Like, you um, have. How'd that go? Really well. So, that was one of the major things that I really struggled with. When am I ever going to tell somebody I'm a recovering sex addict? When am I ever going to tell anybody I was raped? Like, I come with a lot of baggage. And I remember speaking to you about this and that conversation of how do I do this? Like, how do I tell someone? And that reality check of not everybody can handle this in the relationship. And that fear of, can this guy handle it? And I really like him, and I'm gonna have to be vulnerable and have to risk some of this. And he could reject me, and this, like I've got no numbing out anymore, this is going to hurt. Like It's gonna hurt like nothing's ever hurt before. And it was super scary. But there was a part of me that knew I had to do it, and there was a, 
a part of me that wanted to live my life in honesty. Mm-hmm. I was sick to death of hiding. Um, and in all my friendship groups, I live authentically. They know, my close friends all know, and it's, it's amazing to live that life in truth. And so there was one night I was with him and we were kissing and I was like, I've just got to tell him. <laughs> and I didn't tell him that I was in SA or anything. I just said, I carry a lot of traumas from sexual abuse. And I was shaking. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I can remember, I can actually remember it now like it was yesterday, sitting there like it was the first time, the first time I told a man that wasn't my therapist, the first time I'd had to tell a guy, this is the extent of it. And I was, I was frightened of not what he'd said, but how he would look at me. I was frightened of how he would see me thereafter. Like, will that change the way he looks at me? Mm-hmm. Um, he was in a circle group of my friends. I was frightened of how, would he go and tell them? It was horrible. And it was obviously weighty for him to hear. Yeah. And I, did, I just said, I'd been raped once. I didn't let anything else out at that point. <laughs> it was just a little bit, test right. the water. It was as enough as I could give at that time. Yeah. And he was amazing. It was obviously a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a shock for any anybody to hear that. It's not easy for anyone to hear, especially someone you're getting to know and someone you've only been dating a few weeks. Um, and I didn't really know how, at that point, how it would impact yeah. me in a relationship. Um, but he hugged me and he said that he likes me even more for my honesty and my bravery and he admired me and I cried a lot (laughs) yeah so that was the first one yeah so you did the one disclosure yeah and just told him that you'd been raped one time and he responded quite well yeah and in honesty I thought phew I've done enough as I need to do yeah I didn't. Like, I never have to do the whole thing, right? I never, yeah, I don't have to. I've, I've let out enough. I feel okay now. Uh-huh. I don't feel like I'm hiding anything. Okay. Um, but that only lasted a couple of days. Okay. Um, and I felt I needed to say a bit more. And so I did. I disclosed that I was actually prosecuting for two sex offences. So, and that was as enough as I said in that moment. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, he was amazing. And I was just... But all the time, just really worried about, you know, how women are judged. Um, I was just really worried about that. And if, you know, one day later, was he going to change his mind about me? Is he not going to be wanting to date me? Um, is he going to slowly but surely, you know, his feelings for me dwindle mm-hmm. off? But it didn't. It, it just got stronger and stronger. And my confidence grew. My trust in him grew. And it became easier until the point and I don't really even remember when it really happened but we'd have real moments of you know real vulnerable emotional intimacy and then I'd be like um there's something else that I should tell you (laughs) and then there's something else and he'd be like is this it yes this is it and then just it'd been a few weeks and things were really good and I just thought I'm really starting to fall for this guy I'm going all in and I said I think there's a few things that I need to tell you and this is it. And so I just dumped it all out. Um, I didn't tell him I was an essay still. I left that and I hadn't honestly planned to tell him. Um, I thought, I don't really need to say this to him. Um, Like, how do I even tell somebody this kind of stuff? Right. You know, I've barely told myself for years. (laughs) (laughs) Barely allow it. Yeah. And so... um, 
yeah, I told him absolutely everything else and I was fine with it. And then I knew I was coming over here and there was a chance I was going to do a podcast. Um, I didn't. And I was wanted to be proud of what I was saying and I wanted to share it with one of the most important people in my life. So I told him and it was honestly the easiest thing to have told him out of everything that I had. And he said he wasn't surprised given everything mm-hmm. that I told him. Um, we had a quite frank conversation about things that I would have said, um, and the, but there was nothing I hadn't told him already, which was amazing. And it feels so liberating and wonderful to be able to live in that and have him love me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously caused some food for thought for him, and I know he won't mind me saying, that has made him look at the culture a little bit differently mm-hmm. and his behaviour and some of his relationships because having to look at this kind of stuff like consent is really really important to me verbal consent um i still live with a good sobriety definition he's been unbelievably supportive and respectful and has actually taken a lot of enjoyment out of it himself as as a man it's quite empowering for Mm -hmm. him as well yeah i do have to say just at the end of this part two there is a part three so you'll want to go on and listen to a little bit more about natalie's relationship And also she's going to talk a little bit more about her son, a little bit more about the resources and just kind of some of her journey through navigating sex addiction recovery and what that looks like. But I do want to say it's really, truly been a delight to watch Natalie date and to go through different experiences and and to struggle and to Uh, have conflict and have to resolve all of those things. Um, We often talk about a lot of the wounds that we experience as people here on earth, all of us, no matter what your background is, a lot of the wounding that we experience happens in relationship. It happens with maybe some of our primary caregivers at the beginning of our lives, maybe siblings, maybe bosses, maybe boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is. That wounding that we have happens in a relationship. And a lot of times breaking up of that relationship is what drives us into recovery. Whatever that recovery is, if that's alcoholism, if that's just, if that's not just alcoholism, sex addiction, food addiction, whether that might be uh, dysfunctional families, whether you're an Al-Anon, I mean, whatever your situation is, ACA, whatever that situation is, whatever recovery you're looking at, and if it's recovery from trauma, it doesn't have to be fellowship or 12-step fellowship recovery, whatever it is that you're recovering from, a lot of that wounding happened in a relationship. And we come out of that relationship and we learn about all of these issues and problems and wounds and attachment theory. We learn about addiction. We learn, we just learn about so many different things and we start to get sober and we start to get some sobriety. We start to change. We start to move forward and then we get into a new relationship. And a lot of the trauma that we experienced in our previous relationships is, is activated in this new relationship. And so a lot of us run again, or we repeat those relational patterns that we had from previous relationships. And it's been really a great experience to watch Natalie stick it out. Uh, This man that she is currently in a relationship with has been phenomenal. As she mentioned, he has been very empowering for him to also be able to look at his own 
um, issues and concerns and the baggage kind of the dysfunction that he brings in and and be willing to look at that and be willing to work through that together and be accepting it's been awesome it's been awesome to watch and that experience is what moves our recovery and our lives to another level because a lot of that wounding happened in a relationship a lot of that healing also has to happen in a relationship there is only so far we can go on our own and being in relationship with someone else is what allows us to move to that next level of healing and it's been a privilege to watch that with Natalie so I'm excited she was able to talk a little bit about that and she'll talk a little bit more about it in our next episode as well uh, so we'll have one more episode um, with Natalie's story where she shares just kind of her thoughts and a little bit more about her relationship, her son and navigating parenthood and just a variety of things. I hope that you've enjoyed this um, interview with her and her story and experience. I do truly feel that the more women I talk to in recovery and the more stories that I hear and the more experiences I hear, that there are little bits of me that heal every time I hear that story. Every time I hear another woman and her experience, there is a piece of me that falls into place. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the privilege that I have to bring more of these stories out to the world and out to other people to hear and to listen to. So remember that no matter what's going on in your life today, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter what is happening in this very moment, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. I know that. And if you don't, you can trust me and Natalie until you know that for yourself. Remember that I, pr- I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.